0: Jonathan, thank you for Psalm 144. Amen. No complaining in our streets, huh? Right. Amen. Did you read those words there in 144? Now that's a greatly blessed nation when there's no complaining in the streets. Right. What Jonathan did is, looking at Psalm 144 the way it was in David's time, the church and state were the same thing. So it works that way. Church and state are not the same thing here. Church and state will be the same thing in heaven. Right. So his points were valid. And we have a great president. And he started, our Jonathan started with Psalm 144 by going to the last verse and the last part of that verse. And he interpreted it in a different way to make you think about it. Those people that say Jehovah is their God. And our president in the last couple of days has made it very clear that Jehovah is the only God, that there is only one God, and you may not like the way he defined it, and neither do I, but I know what he meant by it. He said, and I mean the Judeo-Christian God. Oh, that says it very plainly about that one from the Middle East, because that one from the Middle East is neither Judeo or Christian. And so we praise the Lord for that. And he said also, I kneel only to Almighty God. And we love him for that. And we appreciate him for that. And the Lord has answered some prayers of our church to give us a leader like this. A leader that is somewhat like the first few verses of Psalm 144 and a leader that is somewhat like the verses read from Isaiah 11. Now let's be the people of Isaiah 11 and the people of Psalm 144. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. And may the Lord bless you in your pursuit to be appreciative and thankful for even more things about our nation. We do have a great nation. And like last Saturday, eight days ago, when I asked you to learn a little bit about the holodomor, of the Ukraine, and the de of Russia after the communist revolution, I did that so that you would appreciate what you have in America. Right. We are so blessed. Amen. Daniel sitting in our midst. His father left his mother and family in Romania to come here because it was so much better here to go through that kind of separation and that kind of hardship. Thank you, Lord, for our country. Thank you, brother, for picking our national hymn again. I could sing it just about every other week. Someone ought to rate the president and suggest that we sing it. Or someone sings it in Washington. It's a great hymn. It's the national hymn. Congress picked it. Congress approved it. And the words in it are excellent. His true religion cause to increase in our hearts oh yes. yes we may understand that a little bit differently than those that would sing it and the Lord understands that too mm-hmm. there is collateral benefits right. not collateral damage but collateral benefits and residual benefits of a nation that even gives lip service to the Lord Jehovah right. and we can thank the Lord for all of that let's open our Bibles to 1st Samuel chapter 1, 1 Samuel chapter 1. We recently passed the 40th anniversary of our church from its beginning with nine souls in 1980. And such dates and events should cause us to reflect on God's goodness and leading to get us where we are today. We recently heard Psalm 132 explained very well about David's zeal to restore the ark to Jehovah's house of worship by David. Yesterday was the 4th of July for the year 2020, which is an annual time to reflect on the start of this nation and its benefits. Today's sermon, today's sermons, both services, We'll combine various elements of these factors in light of Bible history for our application. And I hope it will be profitable to you. I have had this particular subject on my mind for several months. Those of you with great memories will remember an update a couple of months ago where I said maybe our theme for this anniversary's Mirth Feast could be the stone of help. And if you saw that, then you knew where my mind was months ago. And so you're going to get it today. It's a month past our anniversary. Our anniversary is June 7th. Today is July 5th, so we're a a month overdue, but that's okay. I want us to think about what the Lord's done in the past for us by a great Bible lesson and put our trust in Him that He will yet do it for us in the future. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Those are six words I want you to remember. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. And I want you to remember one name, and that is Ebenezer. In the second service, we will sing number 25 in our Burgundy hymnals, about here I'll raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I'm come. And that's what we want to think about today. We we can think about it nationally. We can think about it as our church. We can think about it individually. The Lord has been good to us by all measures. Amen. Hitherto has the Lord helped us. And so it's time to talk about Samuel. Today is Bible story time. I hope that there's a variety out of this pulpit. We went through Isaiah chapter after chapter, 66 of those chapters. And there wasn't very much variety except the variety of the Holy Spirit in the content of those chapters. Today I want you to think about Samuel. And Samuel, I didn't have an occasion to talk to you this morning because I wanted to find out why your parents named you Samuel. And I don't want to know right now. But you have a great name. And today's going to be about Samuel and what he did and how we have one better. And that's okay, too. Everything good that you are or that you have, especially in spiritual blessings, is by God's gracious help. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. We need to learn those seven words. Ebenezer is the name of a stone, the stone of help, and hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Implied in Samuel's words and declared very plainly by Paul, we need to finish our races intensely, hitherto, but that was an encouragement to Israel, that if they would repent and remain righteous, by the, which was the means they got the blessing that we're going to read about today, there would be future blessings. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, and he meant his achievements. He meant his accomplishments. Right. Forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Each of our lives is compared to a race in the Bible and some of us have run most of our laps or except one. We're on the last lap and we should want to run at our very best. And we can say about where we are in our race, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Right. and hitherto, And from this point on, the Lord will help me but I'm going to run with all my might. And that's how Paul looked at his life. Okay. I wish I had a handout for some of you that love to take notes and write things down. But it's hard in some subjects. So just look at your printed Bibles, and I'm going to point a few things out and, and help you think through seven chapters of the Bible in two services. First of all, let's think about the background of where we're going. We're going to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, but we're going to do that in the second service. 1 Samuel seven twelve. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpe and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Samuel set a stone, called it Ebenezer, which means the stone of help, and said the words and the further explanation, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us, because God gave repentant Israel a great victory over the Philistines, by thundering on them, and discomforting them, and confusing them, so they ran terrified, and the Israelite soldiers cleaned up on them. And Samuel proved himself worthy, and by 1 Samuel 7, Samuel is named one of the five great intercessors in the Bible. The Bible's five great men are called his great men in Jeremiah and Ezekiel because of their intercession Ability for Israel. They could pray and God would spare the nation. And the Israelites are going to beg Samuel to pray for them because the Philistine hordes are approaching and they're terrified because the last two battles they fought, they lost. And Samuel's going to make some great intercession and he's going to set up a stone, call it Ebenezer. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Okay. That tells you where we're going, and now let's get there. 1 Samuel, chapters 1 through 6, give us background. Samuel is clearly one of God's favorite men in the Bible by following him in the record of Scripture. Since you're looking at chapter 1, chapter 11 tells us that he was a Nazarite by his mother's commitment, at least in the hair matter, if not in all matters of a Nazarite vow. Sort of like Manoah's wife, did for Samson, by commandment from the Lord. Because Let me read verse 11 of 1 Samuel 1. And she, that is Hannah, vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So there's There's part of the reason this boy was set apart. This boy, as soon as he was weaned, as soon as he stopped nursing, he was given to Shiloh and to Eli, and his mom went back home to Ramah. It's an incredible story, and she promised that he would be a Nazarite, and no razor would ever touch his head. Now, the Nazarite vow was just for a little period of time in the Bible. We're told its details in Numbers chapter 6, but he would be one perpetually. He worshipped God after his weaning when he was left alone at the tabernacle in Shiloh. Look at verse 28 of the same chapter. 1 Samuel 1. We're getting background about Samuel and what a mother Hannah was. What did she do with him when he was nursing at her breast? What did she do with him when he was sitting in the high chair? She taught that boy. Verse 28. Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord... As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. That is, I've pointed this little sentence out before. You know, how long did she nurse Samuel? To the ninth grade? No. How long did she nurse him? Three, four, five years of age. Something like that. We have Bible evidence, and it's too circuitous for me to spend it right now, that maybe five years of age, when Hannah took him to Shiloh, kissed him goodbye, and went back to Ramah, and left him with Eli. But notice what it says about him, so that you can appreciate that he's one of the great men of the Bible. As a lad that was just weaned, he worshipped the Lord there. Now, some of you that were Arminians in your past, like I was, I invited Jesus into my heart when I was three years of age. So I guess there's an element of worship ability in very young children, although I wouldn't put very much stock in what I did at three years of age. I'm just trying to point that out for you to think about it. What does it say in chapter 2 about Samuel? In chapter 2 and verse 26, it tells us, And the child Samuel grew on. He's growing up. He was a boy. And was in favor, both with the Lord and also with men. That is the description of Luke chapter 2 and verse 52 about our Lord Jesus Christ. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Samuel grew both in favor with God and with men. Tremendous. He's one of God's favorites. God revealed himself to very young Samuel with prophecies. In chapter 3, that's when Samuel's in bed and he hears, Samuel, Samuel. and He jumps up and he runs into Eli, here I am. And he does it three times. And finally Eli says, the Lord's calling you. Go back and say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. And God revealed to him the terrible, terrible things God was going to do to Eli for Eli compromising real righteousness by coddling his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, that were wicked, wicked priests of Israel. And so that little boy got to tell his master Eli that God was going to tear his family tree to shreds for him not judging his two sons and so God revealed himself to Samuel now look at the last three verses of chapter 3 and Samuel grew he's continuing to grow because he was a little boy a medium-sized boy and he became a teenager Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground everything God said to Samuel about Eli oh every single one was fulfilled And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed Himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God revealed Himself to Samuel. And it tells us in the first sentence of the next chapter, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. What the Lord taught Samuel, Samuel, shared with Israel, but he's still young. He's still growing. And so we're getting background. Today's going to be a a procession for us to get to 1 Samuel chapter 7, and then that 12th verse, and then take that 12th verse and apply it to us. We don't have a stone in our yard or in our house or even in our church called Ebenezer, the stone of help, but we have dates and events and praise services in which we try to think back, like our brother Ed did just moments ago, about his immigration from England to this country. We want to think about what the Lord has done for us in the past to bolster our faith and confidence and hope for the future. That's what these seven chapters are going to teach us. Now, when I say five men... I should prove it to you. So turn to Jeremiah 15 and verse 1 to find two of those five men. Now Jeremiah is living in Jerusalem with Nebuchadnezzar making several expeditions against Jerusalem. Ezekiel is in Babylon because Ezekiel was hauled there in the first batch by Nebuchadnezzar's first expedition when Daniel was taken. The 70 years is measured from that first captivity. It's not measured from the the burning down of Jerusalem in a later expedition. So Jeremiah and Ezekiel are contemporaries of each other. But one's in Babylon, one's in Jerusalem. And the Lord's making this point. Jeremiah, tell them, tell the Jews that they have been so wicked for so long, the great intercessors that I know, the great intercessors that moved me To save this nation at other times would not work. It wouldn't matter if all five of them were praying. I am set in my heart that this nation needs to suffer captivity in Babylon. So here we go. Jeremiah 15, 1. Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. I'm through with Israel. And it wouldn't matter if Moses and Samuel. So here Samuel is elevated all the way up to be beside Moses. And if we turn over to Ezekiel 14, we'll find the other three used the very same way by these two contemporary prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14 and verse 14. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. They would not be able to help this nation. And if you look into the lives of each of those five men, there was at least one event or more events where they were able to pray and save many others. You say, what about Job? <laughs> Job's three friends God would not forgive until Job prayed for them. That's right. Remember? Daniel. Daniel prayed for the whole nation and confessed their sins so that they could be regathered out of Jerusalem according to the prophecy of Jeremiah. And, and Noah, the Bible tells us that eight souls were saved in the ark because of Noah's faithfulness. Right. And Moses, nothing needs to be said. Moses prayed for Israel over and over and over again and God spared the whole nation. After he had said so many times, Moses, step back and let me burn up this nation and I'll start over with you. And Moses would fall on his face and beg God's mercy. These are five great men, intercessors, and Samuel is one of them. So I'm pointing this out to you. Look at Psalm 99. Psalm 99 is a great psalm of praise, of the glory and holiness of God, but it also includes a little statement about Samuel. Psalm 99 I know that some of you like words like this. The first three words of Psalm 99, the Lord reigneth. Yes, that's the appropriate word. Amen. The Lord reigneth. Let the people tremble. He sitteth between the cherubims. Let the earth be moved. Verse 3, let them praise thy great and terrible name, for it is holy. Verse 5, exalt ye the Lord our God, and worship at his footstool, for he is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. It's a great psalm, nine verses long, but look at verse 6. Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and He answered them. So there, there, Samuel is compared to Moses and Aaron as a great intercessor for the nation of Israel. Did Samuel make the hall of faith? Yes, indeed. Hebrews 11 and verse 32. Now in these first three chapters, Hannah was barren, so God gave her a special son for her vow that she would give that son to God. And since she gave away the son that she had prayed for, for the worship of God, God gave her three more sons and two daughters. So she ended up with six children. She was a great mother, and we can tell that by the fact that he worshiped when she left him alone in Shiloh after his weaning. Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, if you're there in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, the first 10 verses are Hannah's prayer, and it's one of the best prayers in the Bible. It's a fantastic prayer. She is greatly blessed. And she just gives all the glory to God for having rescued her from this of the other wife. Because Peninnah was constantly ragging on her about the fact that she had no children. It was a terrible life for Hannah in that respect, though Elkanah loved Hannah more than he did Peninnah. And the Bible tells us all this. But the prayer of 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, by a woman is just wonderful. And I'm not going to preach it, I've done it before, but I want you to know that it's there. Look at verse 3. Talk no more so exceeding proudly, because there had been a lot of proud talk against Hannah by Peninnah. But the Lord, listen, how many times did newspapers ever arrive at Elkanah's house that had anything to say about Peninnah's children? Peninnah had to read about Samuel the rest of her life. Because God blessed Samuel to be great in Israel. It shows a a woman of great faith and zeal. In chapter 2, God sent a prophet to warn Eli, not Samuel, but another prophet, to warn Eli about the coming judgment for honoring sons over him. And this is where, in 1 Samuel 2.30, we get the wonderful expression, He that honoreth me, I will honor. Do you remember? Eric Little... The Christian 100 meter sprinter from Chariots of Fire who would not run a 100 heat on Sunday because he considered it the Sabbath in error but he did it to the Lord and so they put him in the 400 meters and he won it and set an Olympic record in an event that he was not that good in and an American before the race gave him a piece of paper that he held clenched in his hand all the way through that race. First Samuel 2.30 Them that honor me, I will honor. Amen. And the Lord gave him that victory. It's a great story. It's out of First Samuel 2 and verse 30 because the prophet told Eli, you have honored your sons over me. If you were to honor me, I would honor you, but I will not honor you and I'm going to tear your house down. Remember all those priests that were killed by Doeg the Edomite? That was to fulfill these chapters. And so that line of the priesthood was cut off. And Zadok became David's priest at the end of his life and became Solomon's priest. Then in chapter 3, God revealed the judgment to Samuel who in turn told it to Eli and he became a prophet as I've shown you. Now let's look at chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Israel foolishly took the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle in Shiloh to battle against the Philistines who captured it. In verse 1, the Philistines gathered together against the Israelites. The Israelites went out against them and lost 4,000 men. They lost the battle, and they lost 4,000. They came back whining, why did we lose? Where's God? Why didn't He help us? Oh, let's take His box out there this time and see if that'll help us. Well, they took the box out and they lost 30,000 men and Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, that were with the box and they lost the box and they lost Eli and they lost Eli's daughter-in-law because she died giving birth to a little boy whom she named Ichabod. The glory is departed from Israel because the ark had been taken. The ark was the central piece of furniture in the tabernacle of Moses, and God dwelt between those overshadowing cherubim that were on the top of that box. This is in 1 Samuel 4. Israel had a terrible problem with sacramentalism. Relics, icons. Remember they kept Moses' brass serpent for about 800 years because they thought it might have some residual value. God only had Moses set it up to save them from the fiery serpents that were biting them. They kept it for 800 years until Hezekiah found it and he named it Nehushtan. A piece of brass. Burn the thing. The Jews would take confidence in their temple. I've shown you the passage before in Jeremiah 7. And this is not me being repetitive. This is the Bible's repetitions. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. In Jeremiah 7, so they thought, since we have God's temple, we can live any way we want and God will deliver us. No, he won't, because Joshua said, you cannot serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God. And he will not forgive your trespasses and sins just because you have his temple inside the boundaries of your nation. That's Jeremiah 7. The first battle cost 4,000 lives. The second battle cost 30,000 men. It cost them the ark. It cost them the two wicked priests that were Eli's sons. It cost them Eli, and it cost them Eli's daughter-in-law. Remember the phylacteries in the New Testament. The Jews were all hung up on outward worship. and it's, I have preached this a few times before, and Isaiah reminded of it, us of it, that God doesn't care for the outward formality of religion and going through the motions of his ordinances and sacrifices and ceremonies, he wants our internal religion. He wants our relationships right with every man. And then he'll accept us. Then he'll say, here I am. Then he'll bless us. And so here's one more time in the history of Israel where they put their confidence in furniture rather than in God. That's chapter four. Let's go to chapter five. Chapter five, God mocked the Philistines Dagon and punished them, punished the nation with hemorrhoids and mice, likely carrying a pestilence because many of the nation died and it doesn't tell us what they died from and those that didn't die got hemorrhoids, but it tells us in chapter six that the Philistines had to send back five golden mice because mice overran the land. But it's not in chapter 5, it's in 6. But in chapter 5 it says that many of the Philistines died, and those that didn't die got the emeralds. And emeralds in the Bible are hemorrhoids, And it says in their secret parts, God punished that nation for touching his Ark of the Covenant. They took his Ark in battle, and they put it in the house of Dagon. The Philistines had five capital cities. And it's mentioned throughout the Old Testament, five capital cities, Ashdod, Gath, Askel, Ekron, Ascalon, and Gaza. Five capitals. And so they take it to the nearest one, and that's Ashdod. And they put it in the temple of Dagon, and they get up in the morning, and Dagon's worshiping the Ark of the Covenant. We love this story. We love it. Yep. Amen. And the city of Ashdod got a lot of emroids, and the mice were running wild. And so they were dying and getting hemorrhoids. And they said, we're dying as a city. Get that box out of here. So they hauled it to Gath was next, the next victim. They hauled it to Gath, and the Lord did the same thing there in the city of Gath. And Gath was screaming, get this thing out of here. So they took it to Ekron. They took it to Ekron, the same thing happened. And they called the lords together and got the priests together and said, listen, how do we make this God happy? Before he destroys all of us. And the Lord inspired their priests. Oh, I love our God. And I I don't want to get off on this too. I've been off on this one before. You need to make five golden images of your hemorrhoids. (laughs) And you need to make five golden mice and put them in a nice jewelry box beside the Ark of the Covenant. Take two cows that have nursing calves and attach it to the attach them to the cart and let them go if they decide to go straight to the highway and then go the 10 miles to Beth Shemesh you know that the god of Israel's done this right. if they turn around and come back to the barn for their calves then you'll know that it was just chance that's what chance 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 no, not when Dagon falls down and worships it and all the other factors in the case. But the priest said that. And so they did exactly that. They, they modeled some hemorrhoids and got their gold refiners to make some gold hemorrhoids and some gold mice, put it in a coffer. And those, those cows just took off straight for Beth Shemesh. Right. And so that is chapter 5 and then chapter 6. When we look at chapter 5, God mocked the Philistines, Dagon, and punished them. And and I've got to turn you over here to Psalm 78 for you to know that this story is important to the Lord. Psalm 78, I never want to emphasize anything in the Bible more than God emphasizes it. Psalm 78 is a long history of Israel. It's got 72 verses in it. It's a long history of Israel, but when I start reading at verse 58. I'm going to read a few verses. 58. For they provoked him, this is Israel, they provoked him to anger with their high places and moved him to jealousy with their graven images. Don't make God jealous. That is why the first commandment, the first commandment, this is as simple as religion can get, the first commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Nothing should ever compete with your love of God. Because then he gets jealous. And he should. He deserves all of our affection. 58 says, They moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity. That's the box. He forsook Shiloh and Moses' tabernacle, and he delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand, because that was the central place of God's presence, was between those cherubim. He gave his people over also under the sword, 34,000 of them, and was wroth with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given to marriage, 34,000 deaths. Their priests fell by the sword, Hophni and Phinehas, and their widows made no lamentation. Hophni's widow did not lament for her dead husband. She lamented because God's strength had been taken captive by enemies, meaning his ark. Verse 65, Then the Lord awaked as one out of sleep, and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. This is God describing himself. Yes! Are any of you praying in this last month? Stand up, O Lord! Arise! And crush your enemies. And crush our enemies. Not personal. The national enemies. The Lord awaked as one of sleep, and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine, and he smote his enemies in the hinder parts. That's the rods from 1 Samuel 5 in their secret parts. He put them to a perpetual reproach. And so here we are, 3,000 years later, continuing to reproach them for touching the ark of our God. 1 Samuel 5. Most Christians don't know the story, but God loves the story. Mice overran the nation, likely with some form of pestilence, and they're included in the next chapter, chapter 6. God's judgment was severe, killing many and the rest of the Philistines got the hemorrhoids. And they moved the ark from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron. First Samuel 6, the Philistines sent the ark back to Bethshemesh with the gold sin offering. And I've already told you about that, and you already know about it. Now in Beth Shemesh, the men there were excited to see it. When they saw those two cows just going straight on the highway, with a cart behind them, this is, interesting. This, is a, this is a side point. I've got to make it. Why didn't God kill the Philistines for moving the Ark of the Covenant on a cart when he killed Uzzah for moving the Ark of the Covenant on a cart? They weren't his children. They didn't know better. Right. The Jews knew better because they'd been told it's to be carried on the shoulders of the priests with, with staffs through the rings that are on the, the corners of that Ark. Right. Just keep all those things in mind when you're reading the Lord let them off. and listen. They were sending a sin offering. They were begging for God to have mercy on them. They were doing everything right, as far as they knew. And the Lord holds us accountable for what we know. To whom much is given, much shall be required. So David got in trouble for not following the Lord according to due order on his first attempt to move the ark back into the tabernacle. Bethshemesh, and it says fifty thousand and seventy died. I can only take a minute on this point. The commentators come up with every excuse possible because the little village of Beth Shemesh couldn't have had 50,070 residents, in their opinion, and so it is altered to 70. The 50,000 is just an error. A fly got into the inkwell, dragged his butt across the page, changed a 70 to a 50,070, and so we can just ignore it. But we believe the Bible. And my little extra, extra assignment or offering to you last night was if you could come up with any ideas as to, that would justify the 50,070. And I've got eight because see, I love God and I love his word. Amen. And when I see something that, wow, that is hard to believe, 50,070, he got killed for opening the ark. Well, this could be true. And this verse says this, it could be true. And in the verse, it's, it's 619. Six nineteen, and he smote the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people fifty thousand and threescore and ten men, and the people lamented because the Lord had spit smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And seventy, in Bible terms and numbers, is not very great or many, but we could go on and on. Let me share this little personal story, and it's not worth much, but it's how I look at the Bible. The first movie I ever went to and dragged my wife and my little girl with me was Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it was on Liberty Street in Ann Arbor. Oh, I remember it. I snuck in there, feeling like I was naked, that the whole world was watching me go into a movie because I'd never been to a, a theater before. And so we're watching this and it's innocent enough But when the Ark of the Covenant was in their possession and they opened it and they did have some pretty dramatic special effects, I got guilty right then that I was peeking in the Ark and it wasn't dramatic enough. Grab the wife and girl and get out of there. Just Because it was was 50,070 men died for looking into that Ark. Textual critics need to read Edward F. Hill's book, we have it in our library, Believing Bible Study. Amen. That when you study the Bible, you believe what it says, you don't change what it says so that you can then believe it. That's called unbelief. Right. And you know what the Bible says about textual critics? It says, where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wise of this world? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. What a difference. 1 Samuel six nineteen and God kills 50,070 men because of what they were doing with the ark. 2 Samuel six nineteen is David feeding the nation for the greatest one of the greatest celebrations in the history of Israel because he moved the ark. What a difference! Amen. It's the right man at the right time doing it the right way right. and so God blessed David with a huge celebration of the nation but this they didn't have the right men doing it the right way and they peeked and broke the commandments of God from Numbers chapter four, that they shouldn't look into that ark. And so that's 1 Samuel six. And where we're left is that the men of Beth Shemesh don't want that box any longer. When it arrived, they were excited. They took the cart, used it for wood, used the two cows for the sacrifice on a rock, a stone there that was called the stone of Abel. That's another, I don't want to distract you with that, the stone of Abel, Abel is, a, is, is mourning and lamentation because Abel died. And so it's the stone of Abel because they lamented after the killing of and thousand and seventy men. They were excited and they celebrated, but then they peaked. They lifted the lid and got in trouble. And so they didn't want it. So they sent a messenger to a nearby village, Kirjath-Jerim, and said, come and get this thing. We don't want it here any longer. So the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and got it. They had to fetch it out. Bethshemesh didn't want to touch it, move it, or get near it. They wanted this on the uh, people of Kirjath-Jerim. And so it went to a man's house named Abinadab, and it was there for 60 years. Because Saul never thought about it. And we're going to be told the 20 in just a moment. Saul reigned for 40 years, never moved it. But David had been promising, as soon as I'm king and I'm able to move it, I will move it. And that's why we got Psalm 132 by Chris a couple of weeks ago. I hope you all remember. These elements of Bible stories should fit together so that we understand them. The ark is away from the tabernacle, sitting in a man's garage for 60 years. And no one does anything about it. It's the central point of God's worship. It's the place where God would come and visit with his people. Chapter 7. Oh, chapter 7. This chapter begins the record of Samuel as Israel's great judge and civil magistrate. He's been a prophet. You know, there were women that were prophets. And you could be younger and be a prophet. Elisha was young. But he wasn't the magistrate yet. He wasn't the judge yet. And so he's going to be the judge, and it starts with chapter 7. Notice what it says. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it is from that man's house that David brought it 60 years later. And it came to pass, while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim, that the time was long, for it was 20 years. 20 years until the events of this chapter. But 60 years before David, because we've got Saul's 40 years stuck in between Samuel and David. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. God has prepared these people after 20 years to finally repent, and he has prepared a man to lead them. And when a people are prepared by repentance to be led by a man that God sends them to teach them the word of God, the combination is lethal. Yes. Amen. The combination is powerful. Those Philistines should have moved to the other side of Babylon because God was going to come after them with a people prepared. They were lamenting. That's repentance. God has to grant repentance. And Samuel's ready for them. This little boy has grown up now. Think about years. There's one person in here that I know will think about years. Twenty plus five. We've got him up to twenty-five. Now he's got to be a judge. The ark is in the Philistine camp for seven months. So we're up to 26 years. And we've got some elapsed time in chapters 3 and 4. So 30-year-old Samuel is ready to be a judge. Or approximately so. Because to be a judge, that means he sat in a chair and Israel just filed by him and said, we've got this controversy between me and him. This is it. This, This is the way you settle it. And the next one arrived. Moses used to do it. And that's when Jethro, his father-in-law, told Moses, get 70 other men to help you and sit in 70 other chairs so that you don't wear out. And Samuel did this. 1 Samuel chapter 7. It came to pass while the ark... Okay, I've already read that to you. The 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. In verses 1 through 2. If they had lamented earlier, God would have shown mercy to them earlier, and Samuel speaks of it as being very fresh, because in verse 3 he says, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, he doesn't say, because you've returned to the Lord for 20 years, he says, if you do, if you're serious about wanting to get right with God, then let's get right with God, but we've got to do it the right way. So verses 3-6, through Samuel took charge of Israel that God had prepared for his ministry, and he was their judge until the day he died. It wasn't no 40 years until the day he died. He was their judge. The people were in dire straits by the Philistines, but God granted them repentance. God, Jehovah, is jealous and he will never share his glory with another. Look at what he said in verse 3. He told them, if ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, nothing Short of your whole heart is good enough for the Lord. Brethren, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Serve him only. Get rid of those other gods. They were having problems with Baal and Ashtaroth here. Ashtaroth and Baal were Phoenician gods of the city, the big city of Tyre. The Philistines were just a little strip of nation at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, and they were next to the Phoenicians. They were next to the Tyrrhenians and the Zidonians. And so they worshipped the same gods, and Israel had picked up those two gods. Baal's the male deity, the female deities, gods and goddesses. And in the next verse, it's Balaam, which is plural, for the different idols of the Baal religion, being the male god, and Ashtaroth. And Samuel says, get rid of these gods that you've been having in your houses and playing around with. That's why I started with Joshua 24:19. He wants all of us. And he, he's holy, He's jealous, He will not forgive. So you can't play around and, and the people say the people put away their gods, verse four. They were ready. and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, "Get the whole nation to Mizpe." Oh Mizpe's where they had the battle the first two battles. Say, show me. Okay? It, this is how the Bible can, with anticipation, name a place that will not be named that until later. 4-1. 1 Samuel 4-1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. Wait a minute. Ebenezer is not even going to be a place until chapter 7. Well, it's telling you something. So when Samuel calls the whole nation together, They went back to the same place, the battlefield, with the Philistines. And the Philistine scouts and reconnaissance drones picked up on it. And so they bring their whole army against Israel because they've gathered the whole nation to the old place of battle. We're in chapter 7. Oh, Lord, you know I'm in serious trouble right now. And it was a very solemn occasion. Verses up down through verse 6, they gathered together to Mizpe and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord. We are not told exactly what the symbolism of this poured out water was. There are a number of cases in the Bible where something is poured out. Like Jesus was poured out like water on the cross. Prayers are sometimes described as being poured out. And sometimes human lives that are at totally lost or at risk of total loss are called water that is spilt that cannot be gathered up again. Second... There's all those examples, but there's one that that I want to remind you of as well. When David was in a cave, he said, I wish I had some water from the well of Bethlehem. It's the best water I ever had. Three of his men heard that, fought their way through the Philistine lines, brought him back a canteen of water. What did he do? Poured it out. out. This is the blood of men. I can't drink this. This is a sacrifice to God. We're not told but it was a serious solemnity and they fasted on that day. I look at that water as them being very thirsty. They had traveled a great distance to all be there at Misbe. And the the only water they had, they poured out. When they're all standing there with dry throats from a fast, but that's just your pastor trying to look at the verse and say, Lord, you've got a fast and you've got pouring out water and it's very solemn and that's where we can leave it. I just gave you five options. Do you know why I give you five? Because it, it, there's at least a 500% probability that the Bible is true. Amen. If you ever want to read about a man, Edward F. Hills, Harvard Theological School, mm-hmm. he went against all of them by holding to the received text, Textus Receptus, and the King James Bible. Right. It's a great, it's short, it's not long. Edward F. Hills, University of Chicago. University, Harvard University. The Lord led him in that pig pen of paganism and textual criticism to become one of us in defending the text of the Bible. Amen. We have sinned against the Lord, they said in verse 6. We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizbe. There's no evidence he had judged them until this time. So he's about 30 years of age. We already figured that out. Now he's their judge. He's been their prophet He's been serving the priesthood, and now he's a judge. And so he judged them there. And then we come to verses 7 through 9, and the Philistines hear about it. And so they, bring, they get all five lords. They get the lords of the Philistines together to come up against Israel. And so here comes the Philistine army. And verse 8, the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us. Notice, the Lord our God. Not Ashtoreth our God, not Baal our God, but but the Lord our God, meaning Jehovah, that He will save us out of the hand of Philistines. And the next verse is Samuel's great act of intercession that worked, that God took note of and made him one of the five men. Samuel took a sucking lamb and offered it for a burnt offering, holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. A sucking lamb. Do you want to learn a little bit about lambs? The lamb that we got for our children was not much of a lamb. That thing was as big as a horse. But we got a lamb and it was about 80 pounds and it was about a year old. Let me tell you just very briefly about lambs. Lambs are born just like humans. Well, yeah, that's true too. Because the Bible says we're all born like wild asses, colts. But lambs are born about the same weight as a human birth. Nine pounds. So, lambs are born weighing about nine pounds. They nurse for two months. This is a sucking lamb. They gain between one-half and three-quarters of a pound per day. Now, that's a mama that that can do a half to three-quarters of a pound on a base of nine. That's a tremendous increase every day. And so, at the end of 60 days, a lamb can weigh 45 pounds. But our big brute that we had that the particular family on your left in the front row ate for supper one night was too big for a sucking lamb. That thing, that thing may have been a year old. We're talking about something. We're some. We're talking about something that looks like a big kitten. And right. Samuel didn't divide it up. He just burned the whole thing. A little sucking lamb. It was still nursing. It was not nursing in the first eight days. Twice in the Bible. Forget the verses that say thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's womb. That means you shall not make stew of a lamb in its mother's milk. Thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. But there's two other verses that say that you had to give any offspring eight days to nurse from its mother's before you could have it. So it is sometime between eight days and 60 days when there's early weaning for sheep that Samuel took this little lamb, It could have been 20 pounds, could easily have been 20 pounds and offered it wholly to the Lord and cried unto the Lord where was the priest where was the tabernacle where was the ark where was the altar etc cetera, etc cetera. mercy trump's sacrifice i will have mercy and not sacrifice they were scared they were repentant we will serve the lord and they had samuel and he did it and we and we're not Nothing's even said about all those details. But he killed, he burned that little lamb on the altar, and the Lord heard Samuel, and the Lord will hear you as well, or better, because you get to pray in Jesus' name. The Lamb of God, whose body was holy, hung on the cross. Don't always read these Bibles, and when you see words like stone, do you know who our what our stone is? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock of our salvation. Who is our lamb? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is our intercessor? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's better than Samuel. And so we get to go to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is better than Samuel. Verses 10 through 12, the Lord Jehovah gave Israel a great victory and destroyed the Philistines. So that in verse... Well, let's, let's get it. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpi and pursued the Philistines and smote them until they came under Bethkar. Then Samuel, and this is our verse, then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpeh and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Here's a man that hadn't been a judge a single day in his life until that day. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. You people came lamenting your condition. You repented. You put away your false gods. You said you're only going to serve the Lord. I offered a sacrifice. I called unto the Lord. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Nation, look at what the Lord's done for us on this first attempt. What is he going to do for us in the future? And, it, and it's glorious. And verse 12 is the, is the verse I never want you to forget, because we're going to sing it in a few minutes. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. Where you are today in spiritual blessings, and we have them innumerable and all kinds of blessings, military victories like this, National blessings, church blessings, personal blessings. It's all by God's help. All by God's gracious help. Thank you, blessed God. And so verse 12, Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpeh and Shen. I know I've read it to you. And called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines, All the days of Samuel, all the way to the end of his life. Then Saul had to fight them. Then David had to fight them and so forth. They recovered cities that had been taken by the Philistines. Verse 15 tells us Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He had a circuitous route through Israel. It tells us the cities that he would go to, sit in his chair, people would come by. He would judge Israel. But the end of his circuit was Ramah. He went home to see his mom. He went home to his hometown. We don't know if she was alive. We're we're not told things, but he went to his hometown. It's nice. A nice ending to chapter 7. And when we come back, we're going to look at chapter 12 in the second service and just see what can it mean for us. Chapter 7 and verse 12, not chapter 12. Chapter 7 and verse 12. Ebenezer, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. Please stand with me.